While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. Whenever you read or hear about the Tallulah Falls Railroad, someone is bound to mention that it hosted two motion pictures, The Great Locomotive Chase and I'd Climb the Highest Mountain. It's true, I even mentioned it in my podcast about the TFRR. Writing that episode drew me into a subject I've wanted to discuss for some time, and it's the various literary figures that came from the Northeast Georgia area. I'd Climb the Highest Mountain was based on a book by Cora Harris, entitled The Circuit Rider's Wife. The book is available from Project Gutenberg for free, and the movie I'd Climb the Highest Mountain can be found for free on YouTube. In the book, Harris writes in the first person about her husband, a Methodist circuit riding preacher in northeast Georgia. The job doesn't pay well. At their first home, a donation party arrives to bring the necessities of life, food, quilts, and even some furniture. She actually mentions they may have starved if not for the occasional donation party. In the book, the first arrival to the house finds the main character crying in the kitchen and explains that all brides cry when they first realize what they've done to themselves, but that she needs to hold back crying as she has guests arriving soon. The rest of the book seems to be the story of her holding back those tears as she attends to more important issues. The movie has its similarities. A neighbor comes across the preacher's wife crying on her first day in the house and gives basically the same speech, but no, she's only crying because she's been cutting onions and everyone pours into the house and she happily joins the party. Of course, that's a movie. It has characters and story development and beautiful scenery. It doesn't illustrate the isolation Harris expresses in the book, both from being in the remote mountains of northeast Georgia, but also being remote from her husband, William. There are basically three figures of William. In the movie, he's brilliant, a natural leader, and uses his intelligence to bring people into the church. He'll race horses with this one and have long conversations with this one, and if they don't accept him right away, no problem. We'll see this character again in 20 minutes or so and try again. In fact, he barely hides his admiration for those with the strength of will to resist him. In the book, William works tirelessly to build his church, but he's a deeply flawed person and the work is oppressive. He may leave home to visit a sick townsperson who's resisted the church their entire life, only to come home in the morning tired and haggard to report that they finally died in the faith. She describes the widowhood of her marriage as she admires him for his dedication to God and supports him constantly, although he is never really at home with her. He's always lost in some pillar of cloud in his thoughts toward his great God's far eternity. The real William, Cora Harris's William, was a true hellfire preacher who abandoned his family in 1888. Like the character in the book, this William has stopped feeling the presence of God, but he has actually left to go to Texas to seek spiritual assistance. He was found there and came back to Georgia and tried doing some teaching and preaching off the circuit, but he suffered some nervous breakdowns and never really made a go of it. He eventually took his own life in 1910. 
When Cora Harris's husband died, she made a living for herself by writing books and writing articles for the Saturday Evening Post. She was a fairly controversial figure for the early 1900s. She upheld the traditional view of the family as the basis for society. In her world, divorce is never an option, so a wife's lot is to work within her marriage and do the very best she can. Actually, in another book, a mother consoles her daughter, who's just found out that her husband was cheating on her, by saying, there never was a wife happy forever. Another character in that book remarks, a woman can always manage the man she marries if she's not in love with him. But Harris became an independent woman who supported herself by writing books that praised traditional gender roles. She was sort of a feminist who wrote books that were anti-feminist. Her books are pretty quick reads, but there's a lot to them. Some are available on Project Gutenberg, Google Books has a few, and uh, the Georgia Public Libraries. Also, if you haven't seen I'd Climb the Highest Mountain, it starts off with some footage from the Tallulah Falls Railroad, and the scenery is beautiful. It's actually not such a bad movie. You might like it. I was first introduced to Thomas Holly Chivers around Halloween. He was born to a wealthy family and studied medicine at Transylvania University. Seriously, Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky. Okay, Transylvania is a very respectable and prominent school. Jefferson Davis went there along with hundreds of politicians, scientists, and writers, and this is off the subject. Thomas Holly Chivers got a medical degree, but was really interested in poetry. His poetry is very dense and uses a lot of mystical imagery. Around 1841, Edgar Allan Poe wrote a critique of Chivers' work, which opened the lines of communication between the two, and pretty soon they were loyal correspondents. They discussed works in progress and inspiration for upcoming projects and bounced ideas off each other. The two had some remarkable similarities in style, which led to later accusations of plagiarism. After Poe's death, Chivers claimed the poet blatantly stolen his, what we would now call, intellectual property, specifically some parts of The Raven. Chivers made his case in a book, and although some critics agreed that the two poets certainly influenced each other, it seemed to work in both directions. Chivers continued to write poetry and write about Edgar Allan Poe. He died at his home in Decatur, leaving quite a few poems, mostly involving Native Americans and death, sometimes dying Native Americans, most of which are available for free on the internet. I'm going to close out here with one stanza from a charming 31-page poem entitled Nakuchi, or The Evening Star. The Oak's Leviathan shattered by the nod of these almighty elements, fall down in dread abasement, howling out to God and nature, whose omnipotent renown transcends eternity, <sighs> beneath whose frown of dreadful majesty he rules the stars that light immensity, upon whose crown they shine above earth's elemental wars, and whose right hand breaks down even hell's infernal bars. Step right up and swing them boys, swing them body high. That's the way we do it down in Georgia. Everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The yellow man left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right left walk on your heel and toe. From an Edepherty gal to Georgia. That's all.